very often there is something that in our opinion is is a bit of a false narrative. So it's the, you can either have privacy or you can have health. You can either have privacy or you can have security. And for us, that's a false dichotomy. And it also creates a lot of fear in people's minds. Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the wins and fails of innovators. Brought to you by CDTM in Munich. Hey, you're listening to the third season of Mostly Awesome podcast, where we talk to changemakers and innovators with foreign roots. With each episode, we want our listeners to not only get inspired by the success stories of our guests, but also understand all the odds they had to beat to make it big. Today is a special episode. We have not just one, but two guests, Thomas and Quanch, the founders of DataGuard, a venture that helps companies manage data privacy, information security, and compliance. There's a saying that finding a co-founder is no less important than finding a life partner. In case of Thomas and Quanch, one can say that these two were definitely meant to build a company together. They first met as teenagers in a workshop for basketball trainers and soon decided this was not meant to be an accidental encounter. Directly after their bachelor, Thomas and Kovanch founded their first ventures. However, both early attempts were unsuccessful. After going separate ways abroad, Thomas and Kovanch founded again in 2017. DataGuard is now their third joint and first successful startup. So what exactly does DataGuard do? The rise of data privacy laws like the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, has introduced a lot of complexity when it comes to customer data. For many small and medium-sized companies, the GDPR has since been called hard to understand and even harder to follow. But for DataGuard, it's their bread and butter. In the past, only a few companies could afford a specialized law firm or an external data protection officer to meet all the compliance standards. DataGuard bridges this gap and navigates their company customers through all the necessary regulations with an end-to-end -end solution. Before we jump into the episode with Quanch and Thomas, let's get a quick overview of what we discussed with them from Maria. Quanch and Thomas put together, represent at least five nationalities, if not more. So it was natural for us to begin the episode by talking about their cultural backgrounds, how that defines them as people and how it affects their entrepreneurial journey. Keke and I exchanged glances of amazement when midway through this episode, we learned that these two co-founders of all places actually met each other at a basketball training camp. COVID has often been a subject of discussion in many of our episodes, but this time, since we were talking to experts in the field of data privacy and information security, we not only spoke about the impact that the pandemic had on corporate culture, but also about the public's propensity to share the personal data in times like this. We spoke about the future of data privacy, GDPR, and also about annoying cookie banners on every website. Spoiler alert, Quanch and Thomas, like the rest of us, don't read the cookie policies on every website either. In a world where everyone believes in dystopian stories of how we are being spied on all the time, it's been great talking to two people who are on the front lines of solving this problem and are refreshingly optimistic about the future of data privacy. So without wasting another minute, 
let's jump right into our conversation with the co-founders of Munich-based Data Guide. Welcome, Kavanch and Thomas. It's really great to have you here today. Thanks for having us. And yeah, let's uh, start with our very first question, which is actually from our previous guest. This is our tradition where every guest leaves a question for the next guest without knowing who they are. So a question to you from our previous guest is, what is your favorite failure? Perhaps I can start with a favorite failure, although it took me a while to see it as a favorite. I had a restaurant chain before I found a data guard and six restaurants with Turkish Arabian food like Vapiano in a modern style. And I did this for six years. And in the, in the end, it didn't turn out to be successful. And I put a lot of effort and also money in it that I lost and was one of my biggest failures professionally, at least. But based on those experience, I learned that much that I would say that at least a bit of data guards path was also thanks to that failure that I had before. And yeah, that motivated me more and not doing the same mistakes at least again. Yeah, and I think another failure that uh, Kivansh and I had together, and this was pre-Data Guard. We had lots of Data Guard failures, but this one precedes Data. We started a company when we were really young, uh, straight out of university at age kind of 21, uh, 22, and we failed. And I think going through that failure together at a younger age, it taught us that we can probably work together even if things don't go so well. And so when we reunited a couple of years later for Data Guard, we both kind of were quite sure that we could go through through the good and the bad. Quanch, you just mentioned that it took years for you to see your failure as a favorite one. Why it took so many years to acknowledge that? I think as an entrepreneur, you want to succeed. And also, once you invest a lot, and you invest always a lot, get something out of it. And I think accepting that you yeah, failed and didn't uh, come to your goal, although you did, did everything, at least at that time, is something that, at least for me, took time to emotionalize and digest and see the learnings out of it. I think an entrepreneur does it always with a lot of heart, a lot of energy. So there is emotions in it. And I think you sometimes you have to take a bit of a step back and take the emotions out. And then you see, oh, it was bad on the one side, but I learned also a lot at the same time. You're both from different cultural and I think also educational backgrounds are different, right? Could you tell us a bit more about that and how do your cultural backgrounds play a role uh, in your opinion in your day-to-day -day work together? So yes, we're from different cultures. I mean, we both were raised mostly here in Germany, but just parents from Turkey. Uh, he was born in Belgium and I myself was born here in Germany, but my parents are from Hong Kong and from Buenos Aires in Argentina. And I think growing up with international parents and as kind of migrant kids, that's certainly a big part of our DNA. It's something that growing up, you don't always see as something that's purely positive and fantastic. And I think it's also something that takes you a little bit of time to then realize that it's a huge privilege to grow up with international parents, get at least one other culture instilled in you. And I think it obviously makes us, I suppose, quite open-minded and, and really keen to work in an international environment. We obviously love that so many nationalities are data guards, so many people from different cultural backgrounds. And it's really something that we truly seek. You know, it's not something that we just say, oh yeah, diversity is kind of important for business performance, but it's really something that we thoroughly enjoy from the heart. And I think that plays a big role in, in building data guard and, and it's a big part of our DNA. Yeah, and I think what is also part of both families is education. So our parents come from really basic environments. They all had a, quite a tough journey 
to come out of those situation. And, and my mother comes from a small village and my father also really basic education and the rest of the family. And the only way for them to get out of the country was education. So at our place and also with Thomas, I know education was like really, really important and was also a success factor to have more freedom in the future. And I think the main goal for my parents was that us, my brother and me, have a better future. And that's for the, I think that's also part of the DNA. And as Thomas said, when you're adult, you see it as a positive. When you're a small child, sometimes you prefer not doing it. But I think it's one thing that we learned. And the other one is, if you come from two cultures, you sometimes see solutions where others don't see because you always have two different angles looking on it. And I think that's for sure something that helps in your entrepreneurial career. So you mentioned a bit right now that some positive things about being international, but could you please elaborate on that? Why do you consider it as a privilege or during your founding journey, what do you notice that it really, it is your advantage and it's something that you want to preserve and that it helps you to power through the challenges that you encounter on the way? Yeah, I think you said it well. I mean, there are obviously a couple of challenges that, that come with it, but I think in general, and I think that's so true for many people who come from migrant backgrounds, that it gives them a lot of grit and it gives them a lot of drive. They want to achieve something. They want to have an impact. And that's true for us as well. And as a kid, you grew up in Germany, maybe hearing a joke here and there that you didn't like, but then you just kind of shake that off. And I think in a way it, it toughens you up as well, you know? And at some point you, you can laugh about it and you can even be friends with the people who maybe at first thought, wait, why does this guy look so Chinese and what's he doing in a German classroom, you know? And then later on, you realize that some of it is really just, it's not xenophobia and it's not anti-immigrant sentiment or something like that. It's just, you're different to the others and in terms of looks and maybe behavior. And I think as soon as you find together, you can be friends and you can overcome uh, a lot of challenges like that. So in a way, it just toughens you up and makes you look forward, move on, push, push, push. Was this your view on it always, like when you were getting comments like this, or did you go through some process where you now can say, looking back that, yeah, this is not that they're like xenophobic or racist or this or that, but it's just that they don't know. That's a really good question. I think it, it changes with age as well. You know, sometimes I think when I was a six-year-old and, and someone would make a comment, sometimes you would just get into like a little schoolyard fight, you know, and, and maybe later on you would just kind of ignore it. And some things would hit you harder and other things would just make you shrug. For me personally, I, I think it never really deeply bothered me, but it was more, I thought, people who, who tr kind of try and pick on you because of your heritage or something, I think I just saw it as something that doesn't necessarily come from a terrible place, but it's just kind of a kid bothering another kid. And I don't think it, it deeply affected me. And just kind of moved on from it. Sometimes you take this energy and this hunger to prove them wrong. It's also sometimes good. I mean, it should be a positive energy usually, but sometimes the negative energy helps to, yeah, to prove and go the extra mile. But I think it's the last level of integration. If you feel that rooted that you don't need to discuss and you ignore uh, stupid comments. And on top of that, it has to do with, do you have role models? Are there other really uh, successful entrepreneurs with migrant background? I mean, the... Mehmet and Joshua's of this world, uh, if I take it to DDM. Uh, and I think then once it is then clear for everyone that is independent of your background, it's like the drive, the success, the hard work and so on, then it doesn't matter anymore uh, what background you have. Mm -hmm. Have you had any challenges or misunderstandings with each other because of your cultural differences? I think cultural differences, zero. Yeah. I mean, we have different characteristics and different way of dealing with problems or with topics. 
but zero out of cultural background it's topics yeah i agree Confounding together is often compared to marriage. And we were wondering, how did you guys met each other? Yeah, well, Kivanj is now married to Vanessa. So unfortunately, I only got the back seat on that one. But yeah, we originally met at a basketball training camp. Both of us were trying to become a basketball coaches and it was kind of a training academy for that. And we were randomly put in the same room. And then two years later, we were randomly went to the follow on academy. And again, we were put in the same room and I think so. Was kind of destiny from that and we stayed friends ever since so that's how we originally met and i don't know if you know it but we also share a flat so we're not only our friends we are not only found the company together we also share a flat from monday to friday and yeah we live together and then the weekend we go different ways and we have um different relationships but it's really really close and i think that's also really cool having one of your best friends having uh, passing 100 of your time from Monday to Friday, that's, I think, one of the biggest yeah, freedoms and luxury that we have. And it's also one of the yeah, biggest motivation, founding DataGuard and keep going with DataGuard um, to have the time together. So it feels like being a child again and having the freedom to decide who you're working with. Yeah, I think that's one of the huge privileges of being a founder. You really get to pick who you work with and there's that 100% level of trust. So that's great. And what do you value about each other as co-founders? So... I always say that Kivanj is a 100% pure breed entrepreneur. So, you know, he's been self-employed and been an entrepreneur since age 17. And so I think he's unemployable at this point. You know, he can only work as an entrepreneur. But I think it's that, it's that rapid prototyping, fail fast and move quickly mentality. And that kind of 80-20 shipping things quickly and get them out of the door. I think that's what I really value about him. And then the fact that he's also deeply analytical. So he really has has a great quick grasp of the challenges that we face as an organization. And, and that's very much across different teams and, you know, kind of whether there's a communication misunderstanding or there's something in the data that everyone else is missing. And I really thoroughly appreciate that. And I think as a third point, I would say it's just that we really complement each other. And again, because of that 100% trust level, you know, no one's trying to shine brighter than, than the other, but we always take the, the team approach and, and we know that we we're, we're best succeeding when we're together. And, and I think that's, yeah, that's a third one. And the three strengths that I admire at Thomas is like, if someone does the rapid prototyping, takes the risk, the other one has to finish it and bring the 100% and over the finishing line. And it's good taking risks. But it's also good to mitigate risks and especially the bigger you get. And that's like Thomas DNA really making it perfect in all different areas where I don't have the energy anymore and the skill set. He starts and then takes it over and brings it to the finishing line. And the other one is he doesn't accept a no. I think it's a key attribute for a successful entrepreneur. So I think not accepting a no and finding always solutions, legal solutions, but still solutions to find a way to the goal is key. And I think the other it is communication and people skills. I think yeah, his rhetorical skills, being able to see how you can build together a culture and scale it. It's something that on top of the analytical is important to having both. Well, it seems like uh, you really have this balancing forces and complementary skill sets. Was it something clear for you before founding DataCard that, okay, let's, let's jump on this journey together. And here's my area of 
responsibility and here's yours. We had worked together and we had known each other for a long time. So I, I think we knew exactly what, what we were getting. And we definitely have clearly divided responsibilities. And I think at the same time, we definitely try to challenge each other when we see something in the other person's sphere of influence. Just this week, we had an example where Crunch just challenged me really hard on something that for me had already kind of been off the table and decided. And I went back and said, come on, man. I mean, this is already shipped. Like, what are we arguing again? But it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing for the business. So he didn't hold back and challenged me. And I think ultimately that was um, the better decision. And we revised it and it was a better decision for the company. Ben Horowitz writes about this in The Hard Thing About Hard Things that he says, obviously, you don't want your friendship to get in the way of productivity. And at the same time, you don't want the working relationship to destroy the friendship. And I think so far we've, we've managed to toe the line. Okay, cool. And when and how did you decide to found DataGuard together? So you said that you worked already before that. And when was that moment and how this idea came to you? Perhaps a bit of background. When I was studying computer science and business, I had a focus on privacy and it was 2010. And so I was working as a freelancer, um, being as a nominated data protection officer and had more than 100 customers before we founded DataGuards. And it was a manual process, it was easy money while I was studying. But with the GDPR coming, it was clear that there was a need for SMB and mid-market companies to have a scalable, payable solution and based on 100 customer experience. But knowing from my past that I had to have a really co-founder that backed me up and was complementary. So my first call went to Thomas and he was uh, finishing his yeah, fellowship at Harvard. And uh, when I was visiting him in Boston, I said, hey, Thomas, I think I have a topic that really fits to both of us, skill set wise, but also market wise. And, and I think we should tackle this one. And he did the really, really thorough due diligence, as Thomas always does. And then I convinced him to move back and come back to Germany and to found a company together. And that was like the starting point. At the same time, Thomas and myself knowing each other and knowing that, yeah, what we need to succeed and having both skill sets uh, together. Cool. And was it a hard decision for you, Thomas, to come from Boston to Germany back? No, for me, that wasn't a hard decision when Kivansh came to kind of pick me up in Boston. We had worked before together and I was really looking forward to starting a business, being closer to home again, because I had lived abroad for about 10 years before. So yeah, at the time really wasn't a hard decision for me. When we were talking about your favorite failures, we were talking about outside of DataGuard. And now we were wondering what was your hardest challenge together so far at DataGuard? Hmm. I think it was from the bootstrap phase. You have to know that we found the company without any major investment. We scaled the first years and were also quite big then at that time with a lot of customers, a lot of employees. And as a bootstrap company, you invest every single cent that you have in, in your colleagues, in your technologies and so on, but it's always a stretch. And I think, I wouldn't say it's a failure at all, but it was like the biggest challenge we had, finding a balance of hiring uh, people to the understaffed team, building the product while flying, and then at the same time, maintaining the culture. And then end of the month, being sure that everything works out and the next month works out. So I think that was like the biggest challenge that at least I can speak for myself that we had in the last four years. Gwanch, you just mentioned that maintaining culture was also a challenge. And I know that a lot of companies that are entering the hyper growth stage, they experience a lot, especially when you need to hire a lot of people. Uh, and for both of you personally, as you mentioned before, culture is also an important aspect. How did you preserve that in the company and how you just approach this problem? 
So I think for us, there were kind of three phases of the company. And the first phase was the family phase. You know, when, when you've got kind of 20, 30 people, you have three meals a day together and you spend a lot of time and obviously everyone knows everyone. And then as you exit that phase and, and you scale up maybe beyond 40, 50 people, that changes a little bit. But I think also given the fact that we were bootstrapped and, you, you know, we were all kind of very much in this all together, uh, trying to make ends meet every every month. That scaling phase, I think we we really managed to preserve the culture and go back to the the fundamentals and the guiding principles. And our fundamentals are: we care, we build bridges, we add value, we conquer peaks, and we create trust. And I think we definitely managed to instill these five fundamentals into the day-to-day -day work, the operating principles, also make sure that we adhere to them in the performance review process and live by them, work by them. We jokingly always said we have a 100% no asshole policy at the company. From the start, you make sure that you get people on board who really want to be there. As a bootstrap startup, it's very hard to pay top, top, top of market. And you really have to reward people with development and learning and, and all the other things that are less kind of financial material. So I think definitely that, that worked out well in, in that second phase. And obviously, we also got people involved who, who had more experience than us at scaling up companies, not just on the HR side, but in general. So I think it's great to have people on board who have done growth journeys before, and it really helped us to learn from them and listen to the team. And then I think the third phase was when we got the, the funding, kind of our Series A in the last year in 2020. I remember that the day we announced the funding round to the team was also the day that we sent everyone into COVID home office kind of lockdown. That was kind of March, April 2020. And that definitely was a new phase for us then from a cultural standpoint. And I don't think we're, we're that unique. Obviously, every company that had a lot of remote work and, and home office going on, they went through that shared experience. I think we did the best we could, but I think we also made a lot of mistakes in that phase because we weren't you know, 100% ready. We weren't a fully remote company before. And so I think we had to learn a lot of things as we went. And, and it was a lot of building the plane while flying. So I think we definitely made our mistakes there and still tried super hard to preserve the best things uh, about the culture and the agility and so on. But yeah, it was definitely a different phase where we also had some, some churn on the team, some people leaving us, some people who had been with us for a long time. So obviously, as a founder, that bothers you as well. And that there are moments when you think we, we have made mistakes and what, what can we do to make sure that we, um, we stay on track. And have your operating principles changed over time? So, for instance, there was an external shock of COVID hitting and everyone was remote. So, and you also mentioned that you learned a lot from that experience of transitioning to remote. The second question would be more towards key learnings that you had. First, changing operating principles, tailoring them to current situation of the like, current state of the company, current uh, like pandemic situation or whatever. And uh, yeah share it with uh, people who are just jumping on the entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, the values, they definitely changed. So in the beginning, we had three values and then they became kind of our, our five fundamentals. So there was some change and we, we did this together with, with a few team members. So it wasn't just from the founders, but actually we got some people on the team involved. And then with the leadership and the guiding principles, which is sort of our version of the of operating principles, they definitely underwent some change as well. But that's not necessarily pandemic related, but that's just because at DataGuard, they are written by the teams. So the teams write them, them themselves. And so they went through some amendments and, and updates over time. I think one big part of DataGuard culture is based on social interactions. And this social interaction, you can't really do at least 100% via Zoom and all the other possibilities. Uh, I can give you one example. We used to do a lot of 
drinking hire was an example of of us having fun together and then hiring at the same time in Munich. There is no way of cloning this individual way. And then I think you miss a lot. And then working at Data Guard is then not as cool um, as it used to be uh, without those barbecues and having fun and all the other social moments. Another bit why I, I still am struggling uh, from a product perspective is like innovations. I think a lot of those innovations start at the water cooler or like randomly. And, and if you don't have those random interactions, yeah, you lose a lot uh, in innovation. And that's something that we didn't find a perfect solution. So I think productivity wise and so on, that works sometimes even better if you're not distracted and focus on your singular job. But everything that is more complex, um, it has to involve more people. I found it difficult to find the right solution in the virtual way. Yeah, and maybe a last point on it. I think ultimately, obviously, we came away with the conclusion that a hybrid model is perfect. We do also have fully remote people and fully remote teams now, but bringing them in, bringing them together periodically, if possible, you know, some people um, are very, very far away. And so it's harder. But yeah, generally, obviously, bringing people together for workshops and, and making sure that even if you work remotely, you have creativity tools and not just a Zoom screen to stare at. Those were obviously some some learnings that we took away and And I think definitely now we have a much better setup where everyone is, is happier and more productive than at the very beginning when this hit us and, and came kind of came out of nowhere. You call your employees guards, as we've learned. And guard in itself, like when I hear it, it's like a word that implies a lot of responsibility, right? So these people feel responsible for everything that they're doing. They're guarding your company, but also guarding and your customer companies. So they are very important figures. What is it that you as founders or leaders are doing to provide them the best employee experience from their start or even before they're hired throughout their journey with DataGuard? The name Guards goes back to our vision, protect the people behind the data. And for that vision, I think you need people that are intrinsic motivated about that journey and about that North Star and coming together. And I think it's important to find people to fit um, to that uh, vision. And that starts, as you said, in, in the recruiting phase to make your expectations and, and the, the North Star, the guiding principle already clear and make a match. So what we still do, Thomas and myself, is jumping on every single full-time hire. We are like the doing the founder interview and what we do there and have a look if the values really fit and the expectations really fit. I think those are the most important yeah, two things that you can do after before people decide to join uh, to Data or not. And then afterwards with onboarding and, and all the rest, it comes over. But I think the key part is sticking to the vision and making sure that you make a self-selection early days, even before people sign the contract. Yeah, it's interesting what you said. I, I never thought about it in terms of guards as a, something that speaks for a heightened sense of responsibility on people's shoulders, but it certainly is true. And, and I think we don't take ourselves very seriously, but we take the work very seriously, uh, especially, you know, given we do privacy, infosec and, and compliance, it's, it's serious stuff and we're passionate about it and we take it very seriously. The one thing I would say is that we still try and ensure that people work with the best people in their field. And that's such a, such an important thing to us with people who actually want to build something because we're not a me too. We're not kind of the next e-commerce. We're, we're really trying to create a category. And so especially in the small, medium-sized enterprise and mid-market space, privacy, infosec, and compliance in the cloud, so as a SaaS solution, 
is relatively new and, and is a category that is just kind of emerging. And until now, very often people would do this manually, in-house, or they wouldn't do it at all. And so I think this category re is really emerging. And, and as always, the zero to one things, it's intense and it's difficult to build something from scratch and create a category. And so we really want to make sure that we have people on board who are keen to create a space and really yeah, uh, build something new. And, and I think ensuring that is a big part of it. And then when people are there, as Kevin said, I think ensuring a great onboarding and making sure there's an L&D, so a learning and development journey, making sure that twice a year we have appraisal weeks where the whole company goes through kind of a 360 degree appraisal uh, process. I think we have a very open and direct feedback culture in a radical candor kind of way. And um, so I think that and, and that's important that, that you get instant feedback and, and constructive feedback from your colleagues. And then certainly the, the usual startup benefits. But I think beyond that, it's also important to pay a competitive package, especially in today's market. And that's obviously with the funding round, something that we've been more able to do and that we want to continue and, and improve going forward. Yep. We just discussed how COVID actually affected the workplace and environment and talked a lot about employees at DataGuard. Now we would like to talk a little bit about how COVID actually affected our perception of privacy or data protection. And during, as, as our audience also, and everyone knows that during lockdown and first quarantine measures, governments started to introduce harsh tracking measures that invaded the privacy of their citizens. And in your opinion, what effect COVID have on data protection in general? So I think very often there is something that in our opinion is, is a bit of a false narrative. So it's the, you can either have privacy or you can have health. You can either have privacy or you can have security. And for us, that's a false dichotomy. And it also creates a lot of fear in people's minds. So obviously if you tell the public, Hey guys, you can either have a, a COVID app that infringes upon your privacy, but it works or you can have one that respects privacy but doesn't work whatsoever, then people will obviously want to opt for the former rather than the latter. And if you tell people the same thing on the security side, so you can either have protection from terrorists and you can have no attacks on the tube, but no privacy, or you can have privacy, but then all these terrible things will happen. And in, in our view, that's a bit of a false dichotomy and it, it's a narrative that is that is not true. And obviously the pandemic, for good reason, created a lot of fear and, and, and justifiable fear. And it made people worried about their health and their families. And we really want to make sure that people don't think that they're necessarily opposite ends of the spectrum. It just really needs to be done well. And this is something that we do on a day-to-day -day basis for our customers as well. There has to be certain pragmatism, obviously, right? And you have to find a middle path. You can't be extreme in either way. That's how we think the pandemic has Im impacted privacy is that certainly it has led to some people thinking that it's either or while it isn't necessarily and you can have a working COVID app that still respects people's privacy and we think it's super important that that narrative gets out there as well and that you provide actual examples of how this can work because we do believe that privacy is a human right and that it's a, it's a slippery slope if you keep infringing on people's privacy and, and taking liberties away then that's certainly a really dangerous thing and if you do it under the banner of protecting the people then it, it, it's a bit of a populist argument in our opinion as well and it's, it's sometimes a blame game where people shy away from saying look, honestly, we haven't thought about how to build a good COVID app enough. And, and this is on us, 
rather than saying, oh, privacy got in the way or GDPR got in the way. And, and, and we think it's important that that narrative gets out as well. And what do you think in general, in long term, can we see what kind of shift or maybe how companies will set their privacy and security setups or maybe on individual level or on the governmental level? Do you see any trends there? We're 100% convinced that the future is going to be more private. For us, GDPR was the first step. And if you take globally first, the last one that the European Union exported worldwide, you see now US and China and a lot of other countries copying GDPR, these aspects of it. And I think it's also good, as Thomas mentioned, concentration of data is concentration of power, be it governments, be it organizations, whatever. And I think the individual should have the right of protecting themselves. They don't have to, but they should, they have the possibility and the right to do. And I think building there the bridge is like our mission. So when GDPR was implemented, a lot of people thought it's like one project. Let's do it in the quarterly OKRs and then we are done. But now they see, oh, that's really part of everyday life. We have to have a department, someone owning this. And it's also important. There are B2Cs, citizens taking it serious. There are B2B companies saying we only work with companies that take privacy serious. And the third pillar is authorities and fines. So it's not only the authorities and the fines in the uh, legal background, but also B2B and B2C. And what we see in our everyday business, that those pushes and forces are stronger than any government and any law and any fine. And that's, I think, great to see that that works. And what we see also on top and that yeah, we like to see is that privacy is not only seen as a downside protection anymore, but really as an upside. So it brings also revenue. If you are e-commerce and treat your customers well and protect their data, then you get more uh, more revenue and you have more successful and happy customers. The same as if you see, look to the car manufacturers in Germany, all the premium companies, they are not selling the data to anyone else. They really prove that they can save the protected data there. I had a, a talk with authorities two weeks ago and they said, hey, it's great to see that the premium car provider now seen as a differentiator instead of saying, oh, we only have to protect ourselves again, fines and so on. So I think it's good. And that's why we are 100% convinced that the future is going to be more private than it's already. Yeah, and I think to, to add to that, I think it's just that the the bar has already been raised. And I think it's true for other areas as well that the, the bar has just been raised. It's not just for privacy, infosec and compliance, but I think it's also true for, for instance, diversity and inclusion and for environmental protection and sustainability. So companies and, and people nowadays, they just have to adhere to different standards. And obviously that is not the same all across the world and it very much depends on geography and many other things. But certainly things like the privacy paradox, you know, so that gap between how much value consumers place or they say they place on privacy versus what they actually do on the internet and in real life every day, things like that will persist. And with a lot more AI, big data and, and data intensive technology innovation that, you know, will continue to face that paradox and it'll continue to stay a, a super relevant space. Interesting and also promising to hear that future is private because there is some perception that sometimes customer can trade short-term benefits for long-term privacy. And you say that actually the trend is that future is private. So I'm quite happy to hear that at least. In that trend, where do we see DataGuard operating and leveraging this market trend? Maria, really good question. And what we decided is going via the companies to come to that goal and said, I think we see the biggest leverage on, on 
raising the bar on really SMBs that in the past didn't do anything, that they start doing something and then they're why all their thousands or 10,000, 100,000 customers being protected. If you take a doctor, really a small entity, is I think really important. And if you don't offer other entrepreneurs or other company owners an easy way and a payable way, I also understand that that's something that I don't like and they're not going to do. But if there's something like a seatbelt that's so easy, not expensive, then I mean, then you're stupid if you're not using it and not really protecting the people in the data. And, and that's the reason that that we said, okay, if we want to come to closer to our vision, instead of educating B2C and the citizens and give them how to protect them, I think it's for us at least smarter going with the B2B companies because then you have a bigger effect uh, on the long term. And that's how we try to tackle yeah, what they got. Yeah, in, in a way, what's important to us is that it's a democratization of privacy infosec and compliance so we want lots and lots of companies to have access to a solution that they can afford and that really helps them to tackle the privacy infosec and compliance and we think that that will help to raise the bar not just in europe but but beyond is there a specific advice that you would give to young software startups regarding data protection like how would you advise them to set things up from the get-go Given today's environment and where we are, it's important to tackle it early. So even if you're kind of early stage, look at your business model. Is it a very data intense business model? You know, is it a B2C a model where you have lots and lots of consumers data, like in e-commerce, for instance, or is it an analytics approach where the questions will maybe be more around data anonymization and minimization, right? Or is it a, a B2B business where you might have smaller or, or larger customers that um, require you to have certain privacy and security measures in place to, to even have a seat at the table. And, you know, things like ISO 27001 certification or TSAC certification. So I think very early looking at how could privacy infosec compliance, how could that affect my business as I scale it? Maybe it's not important today, today, or it, it seems less important to you today as you only have one or two people in the company, or it's maybe just the founders. But I think every founder, CEO, she should ask herself relatively early in the journey, how do these things affect my business now and, and, and tomorrow? And I mean, there are definitely resources online to check out. And it's important to think about it from a product perspective as well, you know, because privacy by design, things like that can be quite important because it can keep you from maybe building the product, even kind of rolling it out and then having to roll it back because you made some mistakes early on. And there are some things like documentation, things like audits that you can tackle relatively early on and they'll benefit you later. So I would say just have a look at it early on and see whether you want to work with someone internally or maybe just speak to other founders, how, how they have solved it. And yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to, to go about it in the very beginning. What portion of your customers are in this very early stage? Like they're just founders or like a few people working and they're already taking care of these topics? Well, we have quite a few, if we're honest. Really, people would starting with the first employee already taking privacy really serious. And those are usually the ones that are either in a business that is really critical privacy-wise mm -hmm. or the ones that see privacy as an USP, as a really differentiator against a lot of competitors. Mm -hmm. And those usually start quite early. And I think... Based on what Thomas said, it's important that you find a partner that talks your language and knows how entrepreneurial um, yeah, roller coaster works and how you have to yeah, hack 
topics and have a customer experience. So that's, I think, one of the reasons that a lot of really early founded companies come to us and share how did you guys, Delegat, do it in the early stage if you walk the talk. And then we can share from our experience how we solve the challenges that we also have internally. And also make sure that they don't have to reinvent the wheel. I think that's also important. Otherwise, you start trying to make something that's not your core business and outsourcing the topic in your core business is something that I would always recommend to entrepreneurs, especially in the early days. My question now would be, do you two read the terms and conditions before you agree with them or before you accept cookies? I don't ask Maria because I assume that she doesn't. <laughs> Such a good question. So I will obviously have to answer with yes, but the truth is, no, the truth is no. And obviously the cookie banners are hugely annoying. I think what's important though is you can rest assured that the consumer awareness groups, they, they will be reading it and, and, and lots of lawyers will be reading it. And, and you can see obviously now that um, Max Schrems and, and none of your business, they went after companies that, that didn't have uh, uh, proper kind of cookie, cookie banners, cookie policies and, um, and privacy policies. And that is important because I think in many ways, companies rely on the consumer just obviously wanting to get rid of the banner, not reading it. But that's true for TNCs in general, right? That's even if you sign a mobile phone contract, most people will not read the 27 pages, right? However, you can rest assured that there are processes in place and that there are people who, who are looking at it and, and reading it. I do think that Obviously, privacy regulation is a relatively recent thing compared to many other pieces of regulation. So things are still very much evolving in that space. And I think right now, both on the regulatory front, as well as in the courts and from a, a, an enforcement perspective, the fines, etc., we will still see how this plays out. And I think we're still kind of in the, in the middle of that process. Do you think there's like a good, smart way to solve this issue that no one actually reads this, like the end user doesn't actually read and know what they're agreeing to and it's actually not sustainable right i cannot say that every website that i visit during the day i can read it through even if i wanted to understand what actually i'm agreeing to and so what do you think could be a smart solution to that to get informed without reading these pages and pages of content that you don't even understand because it's written in like another language even it definitely has to become easy again so it shouldn't be 70 pages that no one understands for a regular person. And if you take what Apple did in the App Store, that's like way easier now. I think it's 12 icons. You see what data you're really giving. And there's, I think, a great example of making privacy easy again, because otherwise it's like privacy is like 70 pages, but that's not about privacy. That's like the documentation of privacy. Privacy is about the data and the people behind the data. And I think that it needs innovative solutions to make it easy again. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm looking forward to one day when I like go on a page and I understand immediately what I'm agreeing to and not worry about the consequences of my clicking on something. So let's see where that goes in the future. Okay, what is the book everybody should read? In my opinion, it's Ask a Developer is a book that I read recently and Entrepreneur CEO and a developer himself, John Lawson. And it speaks about what technology is going to be so important in the future and therefore how techies are going to be important and what you have to do to understand techies and also build your business model uh, based on techies. A book that, that I read very recently and that I really enjoyed that is, that is, is non-business non is A Gentleman in Moscow. I think it very beautifully describes how kind of a Russian aristocrat is confined 
to his hotel room in the Hotel Metropole in, in Moscow. And I think in, in pandemic times, that was definitely a good and an and enjoyable read. Noted. Great. I actually can confirm that Metropole is a great hotel to be confined, especially during lockdown time. <laughs> okay, great. Moving on. The app everybody should download. I think Signal, so you don't necessarily have to use WhatsApp. Another one is that I personally use and find helpful is Blinkist. And I think other than that, yeah, Kivanch and I, we try and put the phones aside as much as possible. But obviously, yeah, the, you know, things like the Asana app and, 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 and so on, that, that is definitely helpful to stay, stay productive from the mobile. What's the podcast do you like listening to? We both listen to Sastra podcasts. So everything around SAS business helps a lot. And it's always fun to get to know the stories behind it and also the founders and the experiences. Yeah, I think another good one that I uh, enjoy is how I built this. Yeah, definitely enjoy because I think it shows how close to failure a lot of the, the really big businesses are and how most of the founders say, look, there's a ton of luck involved and, and happenstance and obviously still dedication, hard work, etc. But yeah, it, it has always been cool to see. What is the routine that you follow? My personal routine is a morning routine. So after reading the 5 a.m. book, I had six months of doing it really. And now it's more a 6 a.m. <laughs> book. Or the 6 a.m. it is routine. Where I try to do a bit of yoga, meditation, especially journaling. That helps me most. For me, it's like beginning of the day, preparing for the day. But having that time in the morning, even if it's like only 20 minutes for myself, helps yeah, to get prepared mentally. And who is an innovator with foreign roots? Everybody should know. Ooh, Shine is definitely the one I would go for. Uh, the founder of BioNTech. Amazing person, amazing entrepreneur, but at the same time still rooted in his migrated background. Couldn't agree more. Thomas, do you, do you have something to add? No, I'm 100% okay. with uh, okay. Kivanch. I read uh, Project Lightspeed when it came out, and I think it's um, yeah, absolutely fascinating. And I think, yeah, just impressive what, what they've done, not just for entrepreneurs and, and, and migrants who are keen to, to become entrepreneurs, but really for humanity as a whole. It's absolutely impressive and how humble they've, they've stayed and, yeah, just truly inspiring. Yep. Couldn't think of more. Great. And last but not least, what would be the question that you want us to ask our next guest or guests? I don't want to tease to it, but it's possible that the next guests are also two people, inseparable like you two. My question would be, what are you most proud of in your entrepreneurial journey so far? And my question, what are the best practices for Zoom fatigueness at your company? Great. Two very good questions. I can't wait to hear what the uh, next guests have to say about this. Yeah, thanks a lot. This would actually be a wrap. Thanks a lot for being here and for sharing your story so openly and also educating Maria and I about data protection so much. But yeah, thanks for also coming here together. This, uh, this was a first and I think for me a very enjoyable experience and conversation. Thanks so much for having us. Really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. This season of Mostly Awesome Podcast is brought to you by CDTM, Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork together with Srajit Sakuja, Anne-Christine Ga, Julia Kozlovskaya, and Miriam Schmidt. If you like our podcast and you would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends who might be interested in topics we discussed about Mostly Awesome. 
We'd like to invite inspiring guests with diverse cultural backgrounds to our podcast. Our inbox, podcast at cdtm.de, is open for warm intros. Thanks for tuning in. See you in two weeks. <laughs>